Well, welcome. Thank you guys for joining us for our first ever, we are calling these Saturday seminars. And this one's going to be on the topic of relationships. If we hadn't had a chance to meet before, my name's Daniel. I serve as pastor of the Mountain Church. And this is our first event like this we've ever done. Uh, our, our hope today is to consider the topic of relationships and, and, and ask, what, what are healthy relationships? Why, are we, why should we consider relationships? What makes relationships go bad? What makes relationships abusive or toxic? Particularly, we want to explore how does the, the claims of the Christian faith affect relationships? How do they apply to relationships? How does the gospel or the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, how does that affect our relational world? What is the teaching of Jesus about why we are to be relational? Why relationships fail? What makes them destructive? So I'm going to be co-teaching today with Sarah Tuttle, the executive director of Lighthouse Northwest. Sarah, thank you for joining us and being with us. Uh, she is all about healthy relationships. She has given herself to help people heal from destructive and abusive relational patterns. She's, she's learned a lot about relationships in her work, and she, she shares on this topic with clarity and understanding. So I'm looking forward to co-presenting this material with you, Sarah. Uh, we frame this teaching around the four, Christian, the four movements of the Christian story. So we're going to be looking at uh, the creation. Why, how did God create relationships? Those creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So what, what makes relationships go wrong as we consider the fall? How does the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, how does that redemption, how does that apply to relationships and then in, in restoration and the work that he's called us to continue to do, uh, how do we grow and, and seek health as relational beings? Does that sound good? So we're going to be framing the teaching. I'll cover two. Sarah's going to cover two. We'll alternate between those. Sarah and I are not relational experts. We don't think that we have mastered or that anyone can master <laughs> relationships. Rather, we think that we're called to continually grow as what does it mean to be uh, a healthy relational being. And our hope and posture is, is to share what we've learned in our faith, share what we've learned in our experience, and offer some hope and help and encouragement. So please don't don't think that we are coming to share this, you know, download all of this mastery that we have. We would like to just present uh, what we've what we've learned from the scriptures and and hopefully offer some help and hope. Sound good? Okay, if you were to consider what a healthy relationship looks like, what would you who would you seek to learn from? Jesus. That's a, the Christian answer. What about ancient Greek philosophers? They talked about relationships and friendships. Plato and Aristotle believed that friendship was a, a most vital virtue for good life. Friendship, according to Aristotle, is a virtue that, he says, is, quote, most necessary with a view to living. For without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all other goods. Relations were very, they, they, they value, these ancient Greek philosophers value this. If you're not into ancient philosophy, what about modern philosophy? What about the American poet and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's what he said about relationships. The, the only way to have a friend is to be one. Well, if you're not into philosophy, ancient or modern, what about influential scientists, English naturalists? You've heard of this man, Charles Darwin? He said, a, friend, a man's friendships are one of the best measures of his worth. And interesting? Seems to be saying that the quality of a person's life is determined by the quality of their relationships. 
What about the relational experts of Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber? Taylor Swift says this, in, in a relationship, each person should support the other. They should lift each other up. And Taylor Swift knows a lot about relationships, right? What about Justin Bieber? He says, friends are the best to turn to when you're having a rough day. Friends are supposed to be there for you in your time of need. Do you, do you think that good relationships, or do you know how important good relationships are in your life? As I was preparing for this talk, I listened to a, a TED Talk talking about the importance of good relationships actually on happiness and health. This is a physical correlation. And, and the study showed that, you know, while many people think that fame and, ha- and money, like those are the aim of, there was, he presented this study of, you know, 80% of millennials think that their, their high aim in life is to get money. Like 50%, the aim is fame. They think if they get these things, then we'll be happy and healthy. But studies have shown that what, what people seek for happiness, two of these greatest things, money and popularity, the science actually doesn't support that if people get these things, that they're actually happy and healthy. Science has actually shown in this, this guy named Robert Waldinger, he served as the director of a 75-year-old study, a Harvard study, where they traced uh, adults all the way through their adult life. It's one of the longest studies that's ever been conducted. They traced the development of sophomore students at Harvard all the way through adult years, and they traced uh, boys in the slums of Boston in the 1930s all the way through their adult life. And this is a rare study. They followed over 700 men. Robert summarized three important lessons from this study. First, social connections, meaningful connection, genuine relationships are connected to a happier, healthier, longer-lasting life. The study showed that loneliness kills. The experience of loneliness, where people are more isolated, they report lower levels of happiness. Their health declined earlier and their brain function declined earlier. It's a deadly effect. Second, they learned that it's not just the number of friends you have. It's the, the quality of those friends you have. It's not even about if you're in a long-term romantic relationship. You can be lonely in a married relationship. What matters more is the closeness of relationships. Living in the midst of continual relational conflict, they also showed is very bad for your health. The researchers found that the people who were most satisfied in the relationships at age 50 were the happiest and healthiest at age 80. Didn't matter if you climbed the social ladder as a Harvard graduate. It didn't matter if you stayed in the slums as a child in Boston. It didn't matter how much you advanced socially. What mattered most was how satisfied you were in relationship. That was the biggest factor in health and happiness. And third, they learned that good relationships don't just protect our kind of emotional state, but they actually protect brain and memory function. People who felt like they had someone that they could really count on in the time of need had brain function and memories that stayed sharper longer. Isn't this fascinating? People who couldn't count on others, who were not satisfied in relationships, they experienced earlier memory decline and decline in brain function. Isn't that fascinating? So healthy, stable, secure, loving relationships are vital for our health. And this leads me to conclude, along with Rich Plass and Jim Colfield, they wrote this, this book I, that I would recommend called The Relational Soul. They talk about the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your relationships. And I understand this to mean that, that relationship with God and others is vital for our health and happiness as a Christian, as a pastor.
The relational difficulties, unhealth, abuse, and toxicity we've experienced in relationship was not, as I believe, a part of the original design. So let's consider now, how did God create us? Let's look at creation. In the Christian faith, human beings are relational beings because they are created in the image of a relational God. The Christian belief and doctrine of the Trinity of God is that there are three persons in one God, three distinct persons, yet one in essence. And according to, to the Bible in 1 John 4, 8, God is described as a God of love. So God exists as a, as a perfect, unconditional, divine love, a perfect union of three in one. And at the very beginning of the story, of the Christian story, in Genesis 1, God, it it records God saying this, let us make man, humanity, in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. So human beings were created to partner with God in ruling over his creation and cultivating the land, and the man and the woman that God created are described as being naked and unashamed. That's, that's, that's how they were described in relationship with each other and, and with with God, Adam and Eve are totally exposed and completely uninhibited. No fear, no image problems, no danger of, of being taken advantage of. They are fully and completely safe. This is God's original design for relationships. And God is described as walking among them in the garden. So there's a good loving relationship between God and his people. Humans are right and at peace with each other and at peace with God. And this is how the biblical narrative describes creation and the relationships that exist in humanity. I would submit to you that this is what we are longing for in our relationships, relationships where we can be naked and unashamed. And the biblical presentation of the creation of the world is, is actually very different than other ancient Near East literature and origin stories. When you compare the Christian story against the origins of other ancient Near Eastern religions, the, the stories are very different. Jewish ideas are in stark contrast with the surrounding ideas of the, the nations, the ancient Near East. If you didn't know this, ancient, ancient Near East, I, I was learning about this and learning about the, the difference of the creation of the world in Genesis 1 versus other peoples, other surrounding nations in this time, how they described how the world came into being. Ancient Near Eastern mythology involves violence of a male god against a female god. That's how the creation came about, between violence between men and women. The ancient myth of the Greeks is that the goddess of the earth, Mother Earth, is, is there and by means of a virgin birth, she gives birth to space and they mate together and become time. And eventually Kronos fathers Zeus and Zeus must fight and overcome his father. This is, this is Greek mythology. Right? In ancient Near Eastern literature and ancient Greek literature, the creation of humanity comes in the midst of fighting amongst the gods. That's how they portray the, the creation. Yet in the Hebrew story, the, the story of of God creating the world in Genesis 1 and 2, there's no fighting. There's no conflict. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is happy about the creatures that he has made, and he blesses them, and he calls them to multiply. He doesn't create his people because he needs slaves. He doesn't create his people because he has some sort of deficiency within himself. He creates his creation to share his beauty, his worth, and his love. Ancient, Greece, ancient Near East mythology that the gods created humanity. You know why? Because they needed slaves. That's why they created and And, and the creation of, of the world in the Bible is God wanted to share his glory, his love. He wanted to partner with his creation, and he blesses them. 
In Genesis 3, the first humans are presented with a choice. And they're told that they can eat of every good thing in the garden except the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They already know good. Everything in the garden is good. And they're presented with the choice in trusting God. Are they going to trust God? Or are they, are they going to turn to themselves? Are they going to ignore his wisdom and his ways and his rules and take matters into their own hands? Are they going to recognize their place underneath him or are they going to choose not to trust God? And they decide they're not going to trust God. They're going to trust in themselves. They believe a lie that there's a path of knowledge and wisdom through disobedience to God. And they believe the lie that there's goodness and wisdom outside of God's decree and ways. And the story of the Bible describes Adam and Eve disobeying God, eating of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and immediately they are afraid of one another. They're afraid of each other. They had just broke trust. They abused the relationship they had with God, and they broke trust with God. And now they don't trust each other because if they have broken trust with God, on what basis do they think that they are trustworthy? On what basis do they think that I can now trust you if you have broken trust with God? There's fear. This is what kills relationships with God and with others, lack of trust. They can no longer trust each other. They can no longer are safe with each other. They're alienated from each other. They cover and hide themselves from one another. They cover and hide themselves from God. And this is what kills relationships, self-expelling ourselves from the source of life, hope, love, and peace. So when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and the woman hide themselves among the trees and God calls out to them, where are you? And it's almost as if God is giving them an opportunity to confess up and apologize and seek right relationship. And the man and the woman don't acknowledge any wrong. And in the reply, and, and when God presses them on the issue, what they start to do is blame shift. They blame each other. They make excuses. And this is what marks so many relationships today. Instead of honesty and openness, instead of trust and intimacy, instead of a balanced self-giving love and self-receiving love, there's guilt shame, fear, blame, and lack of trust. And while God created everything good, we fail to trust him. And as others don't trust God, they fail to be trustworthy. And as they are often so focused only on what's best for me, we live in a world now of where people are set on themselves and no longer trusting God or trusting others. It's only in it for me. And this leads to isolation, loneliness, and alienation. This is what a lack of trust leads to. And at the root of broken relationships and with God and with others is a lack of trust. So as we consider further what makes relationships unhealthy, the effect and the, the, the impact that broken relationships with God and others have, Sarah is going to continue our discussion on broken relationships. Woot woot. Yay, let's talk about messed up relationships. <laughs> that sounds exciting. Thank you, Daniel, for painting such a clear picture of what it, we were created to be like in relationship. I love that creation story of that life in the Garden of Eden. Can't you just envision that? If you just close your eyes as he was reading, can't you just envision the original design that God had for relationships where we live in a place of trust? You know, we kind of have to leap for that, right? Because it doesn't feel natural, but a place of trust and safety, of peace, of genuine connection and relationship, naked and unashamed, fully known and fully accepted by God and one another. 
I feel like when I listen to that story again and again, it just speaks to the longing of my soul. Do you all feel that? Isn't that what we want? We long for that. And we know that this is how relationships are supposed to be. But it really doesn't match with the reality that we live out, does it? I'm looking for any response. (laughs) Well, I'm going to kind of share... the reality of what broken relationships are. Again, thank you for sharing. This is not from a place of mastery of relationship. I'm actually going to just confess all of my own stuff, which what I've learned over the last 10 years is my own stuff is everybody's own stuff. We're all very, very similar. We can easily relate to the hide, cover, blame, and shame game of Adam and Eve, right? That's familiar to us where we long to commune and connect, but our relationships are marked by self-protection, mistrust, fear, and just an unnerving doubt, right? Because like Adam and Eve, we choose, not just them, we choose to live by our own standards and expectations rather than by God's design. We fail to trust him, his will and his way, and we take matters into our own hands and we don't do a very good job of it. Even though we no longer live in the garden, right? We're separate from that. Our God-designed needs still cry out to be met, right? We're going to consider that. The need to be loved. Do you all feel that? That need to be loved and to express love. The need to be seen and known and valued and accepted, right? You can feel that deep within. To belong and connect, for our lives to have meaning and purpose. We are born, we enter this life fixated on how to meet these God-designed needs in any way that we can. Think about babies. They're born screaming, demanding that we meet these innate needs, right? And as we grow through life, we continue to fight to fulfill them the best ways that we know how. Babies cry when toddlers feel a need or more often a self-focused want, right? That's usually what it is. What do they do? Throw a full-on meltdown tantrum, right? They take screaming to a whole nother level. They grab, they steal, they push, they bite, they shout, mine and no. Anything, anyone that gets in their way of what they want they will topple as fast as they possibly can at any cost. Anyone seen an adult tantrum? Thank you. Has anybody thrown an adult tantrum? Thank you. Yes, yes. We know what this looks like. Adolescents and teenagers, for you young moms, if you're not there yet, just hold on. (laughs) They are masters of the art of manipulation. They try and make others do their bidding to meet their self-focused desires. They become so good at this. And we carry that into our 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. (laughs) We are born with a lust for self, aren't we? Like we're just going to be honest today about ourselves. We're born with a lust for self, our way, our wants. Our needs take precedence over others. And what this does is it causes us to use people, to use relationships, and other people use us just the same. We experience our relationships through a lens, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. It causes us to use 
one another. And in our desperate search for love and connection, which is God-given, right? That's, that's what we're created for. To search for value and significance, we do it by our standards. Again, we don't trust God's will and way. So we do it by ourselves. And when our relationships fail to fulfill our desires and meet our needs, we try to control and manipulate. I'm totally telling on myself, but does anybody else relate to this? Thank you, Chad, <laughs> my husband. <laughs> we control and we manipulate and we criticize and we condemn. Yeah? We disappoint, we fight, we compete, we hurt and harm, we betray, and then we discard. Really, we abuse and misuse one another. You know, Daniel shared that I work with Lighthouse and our focus is to help families struggling to break the cycle of abuse. And what I've come to believe is that we all have a tendency to try to have power and control over another person. And again, it's, it's out of this desperate need to feel loved and to love, to have our wants met and our needs met. And we, we can all fall victim of abusing one another. And when that happens, we begin to, to cover ourselves with pain and shame, right? And we see our relationships and experience them through the lens of our past broken relationships. And we begin to make assumptions about others. We assign negative motive and intent to their actions, and we kind of dismiss ours, right? I'm telling on us. We misunderstand and we hold grudges and then we build walls between one another just for self-protection, right? Just like Adam and Eve, our ways fail to produce the desires that we so desperately want. And we live as the walking wounded. It's not safe to be vulnerable. So we live guarded in a state of mistrust and fear. We cover, we hide. We work really hard to project images that we think others will accept and that are desirable. We try to please and appease. Has anybody fallen into this? Yeah, thank you, me too. Um, or we can kind of go to the other end where we just decide, I just don't care. People are going to hurt me, so I'm just going to hurt back because we're in so much pain. And we bulldoze our way through life and relationships. That's kind of on the other ex extreme. We minimize our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and we magnify the flaws in others. It just totally makes me think of Adam and Eve. When God's calling to them, where are you? What have you done? And they're like, that person did it. You know, no recognition of what they had done. They are covering and hiding, blaming and shaming. We're all well aware that our relationships are nothing like God intended, but we really have no idea what to do about it, right? A lot of times we just go through life having no idea. For those of us that didn't grow up maybe in a Christian home or with parents that modeled what healthy relationships look like, we are literally just doing the best that we can to survive. We don't know what we don't know. So we relentlessly pursue whatever will satisfy our starving souls. Maybe it's through work, material possessions, status, our abilities, temporary pleasures and entertainment, all of which fail to make us happy. These fleeting fancies leave us feeling even more empty than before. 
Choosing to go our own way and live by our standards rather than God's shattered our ability to function in relationship as God designed. Like We cannot do it. We've made quite a mess of things. But just like in the garden, God does not leave us alone or in our brokenness. He chooses to miraculously enter in. And I'd like to invite Daniel up to share about what that looks like. As we're talking and working through this material, I, I want to let you know we, we plan to do some, uh, depending on, on how long I talk now and how long Sarah talks, we plan to have some time for Q&A. If you guys have any questions, you want to jot those down as we're talking. We'd love to have some time of, of discussion afterwards. But as Sarah said, if, if, if because of we've turned away from God, we've, we haven't trusted him, and it leads our soul to have this posture of react, reaction, and we no longer trust others, so it's about preserving ourself. If the default mode of our heart is set on self, right? if, if, if by nature we're prone to hide from God, we don't trust him, we don't trust his goodness, his love for us, we need a change that's going to occur inside, inside our hearts, inside out. We need a, a new heart, a right heart. We also need a new perspective and convictions and right thinking about God and his love, and we need power to make new choices, new decisions to love God and love others. So the, the ancient Hebrew prophets, they, they saw this, this trajectory of humanity that, that continually, generation after generation, would not follow God. They would not trust him. They, they looked to other things to fulfill the desires and their longing hearts. They, as Sarah said, we had a heart of, set on lust. How can we use others, or unfortunately, oftentimes it leads to us being used by others. The ancient Hebrew prophets, they look forward to a time when God would send his very own spirit into his people to change their hearts, to, to change their hearts from hearts that were rebellious to him, hearts that, that wanted to hide from him, hearts that uh, wanted to uh, not listen to him and, and go their own way. God promised and that he would send his spirit as a gift to transform their actions, their thinking, their, their willingness, their, their choices. So what the prophet Ezekiel he looked forward to this time, this is what he said, recording the words of God, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. So even when in, in the Old Testament, when, when they were given the law and Moses says, you know, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and you should love your neighbors as yourself. He even tells the people, listen, I know you're not going to do this. <laughs> even though they're saying yes we're going to obey and follow we're going to do all that you've commanded us Moses Moses says I'm just going to keep it real you guys are not going to do this you're stubborn <laughs> you don't have the power within yourself and this is a beautiful promise from the prophets where they look forward to a time when God's people would be empowered by God's spirit to see the world rightly 
to love what is worthy of our love, to worship what is most worthy of our worship, and turn ourselves from false and worthless things that, that lead to ruin and destruction. Jesus described this reality as being born again, being born by the Spirit, being remade. He taught that God loved the world in this way, that God sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, a life that is marked by joy and happiness and a forever life. And how do we know that God loves us? And how do we know that we can be forgiven? How can we be born of the Spirit and live a new life? God shows his love for us in this, that while we were rebelling against him, while we were still sinners, we were set on ourself, Christ died for us. Jesus not only came to bring a new way of life, but he came to give up himself for all of our wrongdoing, to bring forgiveness and redemption, all of our rebellion against God, his goodness, his love. He came to bring forgiveness for all the ways that we've wronged others in our lives. He himself, the scriptures say, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus took on our selfishness by essentially being abused by us. He was outcast. He was spit on. He was dishonored he was shamed so that we would be healed jesus death was was payment for our forgiveness it was purchased our forgiveness and if by faith we believe in this jesus we believe in his work his promises we are actually spiritually scripture say united to him in death like spiritually we're we're crucified with him on the cross and spiritually we're raised to walk a new kind of life and newness of life Live a new kind of life. Listen to how the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. That's what he says. The love of Christ controls us, compels us. It motivates us because we have concluded this. that One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See what the Apostle Paul is saying there? If we have died with Christ, if he died and we've been united with him, we, we too have died. And the life we live now is, is a life that's no longer to be lived for ourselves, but for Jesus. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. So a Christian is someone who sees this great love of God displayed in the death of Jesus on the cross for people who was like didn't deserve it, weren't asking for it, they actually wanted to kill him, they were rebelling against God. A Christian is someone who sees this great love of God poured out in Jesus, and they, they live in response to this love that's been shown to them by God, and they seek in response to that to love others from his love. A Christian is somebody who recognizes that living for myself was horrible. <laughs> this is destructive. It brought death and ruin to my life. 
confession and these these Christian words, confession and repentance is what this is getting at. I've I've looked at my life. I've realized the ruin, what that life would have led to, alienation from God forever, willingly rejecting God and God giving me over to what I wanted. That's what I chose. And yet God didn't allow me to stay in that condition by his grace. He, he loved me. He gave himself for me. I wasn't worthy or deserving of it. So I recognize that if, if, this was, if this was up to myself, this was the path I was going down, and this is the ruin and discretion that, that would have happened in my life. We recognize that left to myself, set on myself, it's lead to destruction and ruin and death. I no longer want to live to, for myself. I no longer want to live in this self-preservation way. I no longer want to live in a sense of hiding from God and hiding from others. I, I want to give myself to Jesus. His work, his right standing with, with God is, is, is given to me. I don't need to protect myself because Jesus is my protection. I no longer need to live for a sense of looking good in front of others because Jesus has made me good by faith on the cross, right? And to live to righteousness means I want to live out this right relationship with God and with others. I, I grew up in the church and I, I primarily thought about righteousness in a sense of morality. Like if I did the right thing, then that's righteousness. But the scripture described righteousness in a way that's more holistic. It's a whole, whole, whole person. It's more relational. So right relation, being a, a righteous person is not just someone who is a morally good person, but a righteous person is someone who lives in right relationship with God and with others. That's why so many of the commands in the Old Testament for the people to be righteousness, how they were accused for not being righteous was because of how they mistreated others. They oppressed the poor. They neglected the widow and the orphan in their midst. They, they were not living in right relationship with others in their life. They were not marked by a sense of justice and mercy and humility. They were marked by oppressing others and using others. So righteousness has a relational component, right? To live to righteousness is not just, it's just me and God, right? It's, I just need to make sure I, I just do the right things. Living to righteousness, in fact, involves I want to live in right relationship with those around me in my life. I want to be a person of peace who seeks peace. In the gospel, and in the good news of Jesus, his work and his person, a person can be forgiven for all of their self-centeredness. And they're given a new heart, a heart that seeks to love God and love others. They're no longer to live for themselves, but for Jesus. And they've been healed by his wounds. And as they've been redeemed and cleansed and purchased and changed by Jesus, they seek to live in a restored way, continually restoring way and in right relationship with God and giving themselves over to trust God in their relationship with others. If the gospel is not kind of at the center point of how we view relationships, we will continually find ourselves in this pattern of being used by others or using others. If the gospel is not kind of functional in our relational world, we will still be marked by a sense of how I perform or if, if I don't really believe that I'm accepted by God and loved by God and redeemed by God and 
God is pleased with me and, and loves me, I will continually be searching for that from others. I will put them in a place that only God deserves in my life, and I will be continually disappointed and frustrated. <laughs> I know this because I have lived in this element. And I have, as Sarah was talking about, I've not so much bulldozed, but lived in a, in a state of fear and isolation and withdrawal. I learned the, a relational pattern that it's better to be distant than disappointed. People have hurt me in the past, so I'm going to keep them at bay. I'm, I'm not going to entrust myself to them, so I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to try to befriend you. I'm going to hear your story, but I'm not going to tell you anything deep and personal about my life because you're, going to, you're just going to hurt me. I don't trust you. And a big part of my journey in, in counseling and in reading books and in prayer has been God help me to be curious about my defenses and help me to grow more in trust of you. We grow as relational beings as we grow in trust of God and trust of, of making the gospel what we believe, what can oftentimes stay kind of in this theoretical or philosophical or hypothetical world. We, we make that you know, come down and, and, and make it real to my, make it meal to my heart. Right? The apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, if I was still trying to please man, I would not be an apostle of God. Like if, his, his life now has been so much transformed that I'm no longer living for the approval and the pleasure of others. I'm living from the approval and the pleasure of God. And that, that just changes everything. So so much I could say <laughs> about how the gospel and, and how his, the person and work of Jesus affects our relationships. And I would love to, ha- to continue this conversation um, over coffee or as we have question and answer time or to recommend some books to you as we consider this. But uh, for now... I would like to invite Sarah back up to consider the fourth part of this Christian movement. We've looked at the creation and the fall and the redemption. What do restored relationships look like? How do we grow as relational, healthy beings? Yes. This is the good news. I delivered the really bad news, but now I got to talk about the good news. I love that God is not a faraway God. I love that the gospel message is actually good news. Like, think about this, that in God's perfect plan, he sent his son, right, just like you were sharing, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, king of the universe. He sent his son who was willing to go. He sent him, he left heaven, and entered the confines of a tiny womb, Think about the humility of that, right? He decided, I am going to show them that I'm going to live the full experience of human life. I'm going to enter into every relationship dynamic. He had parents. He had uncles. He had aunts. He had brothers. I don't know if he had a sister, but maybe. Um, He had friends. He had coworkers. Like every relationship that we encounter, Jesus encountered when he walked this earth, right? And it's profound to me that he chose to clothe himself in our limited flesh to experience our relationship brokenness and suffering and that he entered this world. He chose to live it with us. He faced the pain of every broken relationship and betrayal. He faced it. 
but he didn't sin. And that difference is he didn't choose to live it out of his own will and way. He chose to live in relationships that were hurtful and that were broken, but he did it by God's design. His every action was marked and motivated by truth and love. And then just as Daniel shared, he chose to die to take the consequences for all the ways we have used and misused one another, all the ways that we have missed the mark, our rebellion, our choice to live and relate to others by our personal standards. And he opened wide the door to a restored life, not sometime way long in the future, but in the here and now. It allows us to return to the way God designed us to live in relationship with one another. So the good news is we know we were designed, creation, right, to find fulfillment and meaning and purpose in an intimate relationship with God and with one another, right? Bad news is we took it into our own hands and we totally, royally messed the whole thing up. And we are walking that out today and we know and experience it. But then we return to the good news that God's like, I'm going to come and I am going to show you what it looks like. I'm going to model how to live in genuine connection and relationship with one another. And then I'm going to invite you to come to me and learn how to do it, right? We know we can't do it on our own. So God's like, I'm going to do this with you and for you. Matthew 11, 28, 29 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Amplified Version says, I will ease and relieve and refresh your souls. Isn't that what we're desperate for? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find blessed quietness. God invites us to come, but he doesn't force. He shows us even in our salvation and in the gospel and the good news, he does not force his will and way upon us. He invites And that's what healthy relationship looks like. It's freedom. It's an invitation. God says, come to me and confess the mess that you've made of your life and relationships. And know that you're not alone in it. We are all in this together, right? There's no shame. There's no condemnation. But he says, come and confess it and let me heal and restore. And though we choose to live outside of God's design, just like Adam and Eve, he doesn't discard us like we so easily discard people. In our hurt and hiding, God comes to us, calling out, just like Adam and Eve, where are you? What have you done? Not from a place of condemnation, but a place of invitation. Come back to me. Let's talk about this. Who are you listening to? God invites us back into authentic, honest relationship with him. And as we begin to step out in trust and faith and go, okay, God, I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to enter into this relationship with you, we learn that we can live naked and unashamed before him. And he beautifully clothes us, clothes us, covers us in the righteousness of Christ, restoring dignity, honor, and value. In God's compassionate presence, we are once again safe and secure. Even though we're living here and it doesn't feel very safe and secure, in his presence, in relationship with him, we are. We're free to lay down our masks and our self-protective walls to once again be fully seen, fully known, and 
absolutely much to our surprise, he fully accepts us. Even with all that we have, all that we carry, all that we do wrong. And it's in this place as we're in relationship with him, beginning to trust him again, that he gently tends to our wounded hearts. He heals and begins to transform us back into his image. And as we grow in trust, you started talking about this, Daniel. I love it. God becomes our source of value and significance. This is the key and starting point of healthy relationships. It's that, okay, God, I am in relationship with you. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to learn what your word says. I'm going to listen to good teaching. I'm going to connect with your people to figure this out. And as I do, I realize my value, my significance comes from you. And that is never going to change. I don't have to run around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to find value and significance and worth in every relationship here on planet Earth. And we learn that his love meets our every need and satisfies our soul. And I don't, can't explain how that all happens, <laughs> but I know it's true and it's through his spirit. And when we find our significance, our identity, our value, that we are loved and accepted just as we are, there's nothing to prove, there's nothing to earn, you are loved. That frees us. It frees us to love and care for others rather than demand that they meet our needs and desires. Do you see that flip, that transition? Right. Healthy, thriving relationships with others they only grow out of a healthy, thriving relationship with God. That's where we start. As our relationship with God deepens, we come to experience and know that he can be trusted. And this takes time, just like any relationship, right? We don't know someone that we've just met. It takes time and attention and sharing about yourself and listening and learning about who God is. We learn that our creator and designer is good. He is faithful. He is full of mercy and grace and truth. He is our champion and our refuge. His plans for our, our, he has plans for our good, and they are to reveal his glory to those around us. Do you see how we can trade trying to make our relationships meet the needs that only God was designed to meet? Right? We can free people to be human. And it's this God, this good God who has good plans and who loves us, who would do anything for us, who died for us. He invites us, again, never forcing or demanding, right? We have free will and choice, but he invites us to lay down our will and way in exchange for his. And when we do, we learn to engage in relationships once again by his design, through his spirit, we can't do it on our own. We need that new heart. We need that new spirit. But through his spirit working within us, he transforms our desires, our self-serving, self-focused desires to serve one another and seek their good. That's radical. That is not the world we live in. Would you agree? That is not the world that we experience where we serve others and seek their good. And here's the most surprising thing. It shouldn't be. Like we've tried it our way and we've realized that doesn't really work. We, so we want to go back and trust God's design and how to relate to one another and with him. 
And when we do it, the surprising thing is that we find genuine relationships. We find fulfillment and satisfaction. Everything that we've been so working hard to create and find, we find it in him. And as we spend time with God and allow him to heal our wounded heart, he fills us with his love and compassion. And he gives us eyes to see others through the lens of grace. Remember how in our broken state, we see people through the lens of our pain and shame and our experiences, right? Now he's like, let me remove that. And you can begin to see one another through my lens of grace. We allow others to be imperfect humans just as we are imperfect. We begin to see them as God's image bearers created to be loved. And this sounds super pretty, right? That sounds great, but it's super messy to walk out, right? It is very messy. We still hurt. We still disappoint. Others disappoint and hurt us. This is the key. When we're in that loving relationship with God, we don't have to fear that anymore. We don't have to fear when people are going to disappoint us, when people are going to hurt us, because it will happen. We don't have to even fear when we're going to be the ones that make the mistake and cause the hurt and harm. Because it's God, by his design, it's in the muck and mess of actual relationship with one another that he does his life-transforming work within us. And he invites us into relationship with him and others into relationship with him. God uses our relational interactions to show us where we're still hiding, right? Where we're covering, where we're blaming, where we're shaming. And he invites us to lay down those old patterns of thinking and relating in exchange for his will and his way. And again, it's not fair, but God chooses. He's like, bring me all your selfishness. Bring me all of the ways that you're hurtful towards others. Lay that down. And in exchange, he says, let my spirit develop this beautiful fruit in you. Let it produce my love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me create my image in and through you and how you relate to others. Colossians 3, 11 to 14, this is the message, we'll call it a paraphrase, it's not really a translation, but I like how it says it. It says, you're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in fire, in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the creator and his label is on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete, So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. It's compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength and discipline, being even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense, forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. And I am going to read the 1 Corinthians 13, which I think all of you are familiar with. But let's read it through the lens of how we engage in relationship, but how God is calling us to do it. And he will do it in and through his spirit. So God is love. And he says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. And I'm going to read another thing. This was a post from um, Northwest Family Life, an amazing organization dedicated to the health of individuals and relationships. They posted this on Facebook about what love is and what it isn't. Love isn't force, control, or possession. Love isn't humiliation, ridicule, or contempt. It's not shame, coercion, or fear. Love is not receiving crumbs of affection, care, and kindness. Love is consistency, warmth, and reciprocal. Love is presence. Love is someone sitting with you when the world feels too heavy, when the despair is thick in your chest and hope feels intangible. Love is a listening ear. Love is not control, it's freedom. Love is not humiliation, it's encouragement. Love is not contempt, it's compassion. Love is not coercion, it's compromise. Love is not shaming, it's caring. Love is safety. Love is knowing it's okay to be who you are, your quirks and all. Love is knowing you don't have to be fixed to be worthy of acceptance because you already are accepted fully by God. Love is being vulnerable with someone knowing they won't use it against you. Isn't that a cool description of what love is and what love isn't? Relationships marked by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, are radically different than what we try to create and control. They're marked by love, by truth, by grace. Rather than criticism and cutting words, the Spirit empowers us to speak words of life, to build others up. Working with God, he teaches us how to respectfully communicate our limits and share when we're hurt. Again, the invitation isn't to just make everything pretend to be okay. It's actually to work through the conflicts, work through the disagreements in a way that's honoring to both of you and to God. We learn to pray for and forgive those who hurt us. That's radical. And we learn to own our own mistakes without blaming or hiding. We learn to confess and own what we've done, seek forgiveness, and work to make things right. That is a radical new way to engage in relationship with one another. But it's absolutely 100% right here, living by God's design, that we are most truly alive and satisfied. Um, I want to just do a pause for one second to say I'm trying to paint a picture of what healthy interactions look like, right? And again, we will let each other down. We will disappoint. But God is so, um, he's not far off. He's like, I know that's going to happen. So he paves the way for us to do that. That would be a great workshop about conflict resolution. <laughs> that would be a good one. That's a whole thing in itself, right? Like how God encourages us to engage in disagreements with others. But um, I also want to say that even though he's inviting us to this new way of living and thinking, he's also not telling us to sit in abuse and unhealth and toxic relationships, right? I want to be really careful not to somehow portray that, that God in the Bible over and over and over again, 
he says, to get to safety. There's stories after stories of God. He does not call us to sit in hurt and harm when someone is refusing to own their stuff. He wants to walk in truth, right? And he calls us to own and be accountable for our behavior and our actions and those of others. And so he doesn't call us to sit. It's not our cross to bear. It's not our burden to bear. He calls us to safety and health and a way out. So I just want to be careful that as I share this beautiful way to interact with one another, if you're in a relationship where the other person is like, I'm not interested in that at all. In fact, I am just going to hurt and use and manipulate and control. They're living right out of self-centered needs. They're not living out of the fruit of the spirit and the goodness of God that we're not called to sit in that, that God gives us a way out. So relating to others by God's design is not easy. It requires us to seek God with all that we are. We cannot do it in our own strength. It requires us to daily choose to live in trusting relationship with him, to lean into the truth that right now we are fully loved, we are fully known, trusting God to meet our needs and satisfy our souls. He invites us to lay down our will and way for his. And the beautiful thing is he's like, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to remake you into the glorious image of myself. That's a pretty good exchange. It's not fair. (laughs) He gets our yuck and we get his glory. That's incredible. But that's the invitation. Um, There are so many things that we could talk about today and hash out about what healthy and unhealthy looks like. And I would like to invite Daniel up. And we do want to have a Q&A, but really our heart was to give you just this big overriding picture of how God created us to be, what we've done with it, right? What we've done with one another and his invitation and way back into healthy, right relationships with him and with one another. So Daniel, why don't you come up and share anything that's on your heart? And then I'd love for us to do a Q&A.